This is Radio Boston. I'm Tiziana Deering. One million artifacts. It's taken Boston's archaeology department more than four decades of work to gather them, and all seven figures of them are housed and cared for at the city's archaeology lab. The lab reopened late last year in a new location that's open to the public. You can see some of the collection and literally watch pieces being cataloged, scanned, even recreated with a 3D printer. We know. Because we went in December. Our guides were city archaeologist Joe Bagley and Reverend Mariama White-Hammond, who's Boston's chief of environment, energy, and open space. Now, when you walk into the lab, it's easy to see how Boston's past is relevant today. You're greeted by a large room housing a group of tables, and these are for anyone to sit down and research the collection. Surrounding this large room, a series of smaller rooms with glass walls. And that layout is intentional, says Joe Bagley. So what we designed was a space that would be accessible even when we're not present, but also accessible when we are present, but very busy. So So what I'm seeing here is literally an office space, but also glass walls, someone working at it. Hi. 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 Someone working at a table right now on an artifact. So it really is kind of, I wasn't really expecting to see such a hybrid of you know, someone's office with their family pictures on the wall, but also the work of archaeology being done all in the same space. Yeah, and this is a pretty big change from our previous lab where we had storage and processing and office all in the same spot. Um, But now we have most of our processing space prioritized right in the front of it, in front of the glass walls, because we really want to make sure that people can see what we're doing, um, because we think it's pretty interesting. We think other people think it's pretty interesting, and we want to make sure people can see it. Reverend Mariama, I mean, the first thing that occurs to me is cool, and the second word is transparency. Yeah, I think um, when I first took over this job, I mean, a lot of people knew that I was working on climate and other pieces of it, but I was really excited to have the opportunity to work with historic preservation. And... I discovered that we had a whole bunch of resources that I didn't know about and a lot of other people in Boston also don't know about. And so a lot of this is about, you know, the archaeology team is finding, preserving that history, but it also really wants to disseminate and expose people. And so these walls are so that people can be exposed. We have one of the preeminent programs in the country that allows everyday people to join archeological digs. And in some instances, people in Arizona know about our program more than people in East Boston. And so all of this is about the vision um, that the team had to really invite people in. And so these transparent walls are about inviting people in. Does it break your heart a little bit, Joe, that somebody in Arizona might know more about what you're doing than someone in your neighborhood? It does. And I know that, that what we do has a national audience, but we really are here to tell the story of Boston and to really make sure that the people in Boston are feeling that their stories are being told through archaeology as well. Okay, I know that if I keep asking this many questions every three feet, we'll never get through the tour, (laughs) so I will let you keep us going now. Well, um, as we're going by Lauren um, Sharp's work, um, I just wanted to point out that uh, she's processing a collection from the early to mid-1600s, so everything on the table is some of the oldest European artifacts in Boston. What does processing mean? Um, At this point, it means trying to get all the dirt out of a tiny piece of window land. (laughs) Um, But it also means that everything that we have has to be accurately identified. So we have to literally know what everything is. 
and then we have to label everything, make sure that we have all the data that we can possibly describe it, and then enter it into a catalog, and then photograph everything. So all of that happens in our processing rooms. So I'm going to walk over here. As Reverend Mariama was just pointing out, we've got a set of Ziploc bags here, a little higher quality than what I put a sandwich in, I will admit. Mm-hmm. But you know, each like I, I'm seeing a Ziploc bag that looks to me like it's got rocks in it. Uh, and it's got some letters and numbers. It says brick. It's got a number four on it. It looks clean. What do you wash something like that with? Uh, we use very high-tech equipment, toothbrushes, buckets of water. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, we clean them until the dirt comes off. Yeah. Um, but these bricks are really significant on this particular site. Normally, we are not that concerned about the brick. It's a brick. We know brick houses are everywhere in Boston. Um, but on this particular site, Mr. Smith... John. John Smith, um, who owned this property, lived next door to um, Philip Drinker, who's actually the first recorded potter in the New England colonies in the 1630s. And the bricks that are that we're finding in the pot in the Smith house actually look like they're part of the kiln that hmm. Drinker used. So these bricks are more than just bricks; they're part of some of the earliest European-style uh, ceramic production done anywhere in in the New World. And again, somebody who walks in during business hours might actually see these materials being, as I now know, processed. Correct. Cool. So from here, we'll move into our digitizing lab and laboratory. So this room, when we first designed the lab, was just going to be our library and our digitizing laboratory. But we weren't expecting to have quite so many books in here. During the early history of the lab redesign, one of our mentors, Boston-wide mentors for archaeology, passed away, Mary Beaudry, and we inherited her entire library. We're talking about, what, three walls of books Three in walls here. of books, yeah. yeah. It's just under 2,000 books, and almost 100% of them are, are archaeology-related. This is just an incredible resource for us. It's an incredible resource to the community, to the people of Boston, to the archaeologists around the country, to come here and be able to actually like read our archaeological reports, read about some of the work that's been done um, across the country, um, and really so that we can also compare our sites to other known data uh, anywhere in the European world. And Reverend Mariam, is this one of the archaeological reports that you just pulled off the shelf? Is that what you're showing? Yeah, there's, I mean, I could geek out in here probably for quite a while, but there's all these pieces of books that have been published, but also pieces of documentation of digs that you really couldn't find anywhere else. And sometimes I see on this in these books, like places that I'm like, I know where that is, like, and really imagining what it was 200 years ago or 400 years ago. And so anyway, this is a from one of the books that came out of the central artery. Obviously, the big dig did a lot of digging and we got a lot of great archaeological resources out of this. So it, it documents a number of things that were found in uh, South Boston uh, during the big dig. It really is a pretty incredible set of resources. And if I'm correct, the site is now named after the professor. Is that correct? That's correct. So the uh, we renamed the entire facility after Mary C. Beaudry uh, from Boston University, who was a longtime professor of archaeology there, taught me and many, many other archaeologists about um, not just archaeology in general, but Boston archaeology. And so for that reason, we felt that it was really an appropriate way to honor her, her legacy and her lifetime. And I should note that Boston University holds the license for WBUR as well. So this is where you digitize. And Reverend Mariama, is this how we get our minds around a million artifacts in one (laughs) place? So what's amazing is how the team 
and volunteers, because there's a significant number of volunteers that come in, can take some tiny little piece and keep unpacking each clue to figure out when did it come from and what might it have been. Once you see some of these pieces and then you're walking through the city, it helps me imagine what would a person walking on the same street 300 years ago been thinking about and doing? What shops were they going to and what were they buying? And how much has that changed? But also how much of that history is still present? And I think that's what's so exciting about the amazing work that this team is doing and why it matters that everyone in Boston come over, see what's happening here, you might find a bit of your history or you might learn about people who are in Boston that you didn't even know were present here. We have a saying here that it's not about the stuff, it's about the story. And archeologists know a lot about what these things are and some of the story, but the story is really only completed when other people have a chance to actually look at it and interpret what we're finding. Because to me, a, a ceramic shirt can tell me about dates and locations of where trade was happening. But to a ceramicist, they could tell me about who's, what kind of techniques are being used or what kind of technology went into actually firing those um, pot shirts. And even today, an artist could look at those same things and then turn them into new art. And so I think that what we're trying to do here is get everything to the point where we have completed what we can say about the story and it can now go out and so more people can add to that story. Um, but what the chief was saying about walking around Boston, these things come from places and the places are part of that story. It's not just a toothbrush. A toothbrush that was found at the factory where they're made has a totally different story than a toothbrush found at the out in an outhouse at a brothel. Those have very fundamentally different stories, even if it's the same object. So our goal is to really take the objects, combine that with where we're finding them and piece that together into a story about what was happening. As you're talking, Joe, I can see behind you over your left shoulder uh, a place, a, a, a table over here with a white box that looks like maybe a place that you set items inside that white box. Mm -hmm. um, it's got a gray piece of paper on the bottom that seems like it would offset things quite well and a tripod there that I'm, assume, I'm assuming is for a camera. So is this where you might take a high quality picture of a smaller item to put it in the digital archives. Exactly, so all of our artifacts that we are processing, when they're finished being processed, we take a photograph of each one. Um, and then our digital archeologist, um, Nadia, has been able to create a really amazing system that goes into that image, looks in the image for us, finds the name of that artifact, writes it out as a, on an image, and that allows us to then connect it to our online repository where you can see all the artifacts. Next to the photo area is this little uh, printer contraption, and that's the 3D printer. It kind of looks like a toaster oven. <laughs> like a big one, yeah. yeah. And one of the things that's also cool is that all of this work that's being digitized, because there's an image, there's a way in which if you go onto the archive and you have a 3D printer, so maybe you're a teacher and there's a 3D printer at your school, oh, no you way. could take an artifact, in fact, the first thing that they ever showed me was, um, it was like a, a shoe, a kid's shoe, that we are able to create a version of it. And so obviously we can't have every school child come in here and touch all of these artifacts for you know many reasons, but they can actually touch them because you can make replicas of them and they can feel what they feel like. You could bring this into your classroom and you don't 
we want people to come here, but you don't even have to come here. By putting it up on the web, we're allowing um, teachers across Boston, quite frankly, across the world, across really, the world. Could, could print their own versions of these replicas and allow their, ch- their students to interact with history. So Joe's holding, I'm assuming what you are holding there, Joe, are three 3D printed replicas of artifacts. Yes. These Otherwise, that is a big non sequitur, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a shell. Uh, no, um, yeah, we have uh, three artifacts that came out of our printer. And in addition to everything that um, Reverend Mariama, Mariama mentioned, um, to be able to have these near an exhibit so that some people can come up to the exhibit and then you can just hand the object to somebody so that they can handle it in person. Um, it's just really remarkable. And we've even had people come to us and say, we have an historic key to an historic house in Boston. We've lost it once before. We've had to get it remade. Is it possible for you to scan it and then we could reprint the key and have a backup digital version of it that we could essentially just recast this historic key for the house so that we don't have to keep paying a locksmith to redo the key from scratch? But yeah, these are these are some of the some of the items that we have in these collections here. What are they? Um, we have a small toy sword hilt that came out of a 19th century outhouse that was found behind the Paul Revere house. We have um, what looks like three ears that are glued it does together. Look like three ears. It, but it's um, a group of oyster shells that came out of the Three Cranes Tavern, I believe, um, in Charlestown, one of our 18th century sites. And then we have an historic cowbell that was found on Boston Common, mm-hmm. dating back to when cows were on the common and little else. <laughs> because we're doing laser scanning, we can have an exact copy, like literally down to the micron, exact copy of artifacts um, as they appear. So you just put the plastic cowbell from the 3D printer. I'm sorry, the one on the left, that's the actual cowbell? The one on the left is real. Yeah. So, I mean, the only difference between the two of them when I'm standing here is a little bit of sheen Mm -hmm. on the plastic one. But otherwise, honest to God, when you set it down, I thought what you were doing was showing me the other plastic cowbell (laughs) you printed that you hand around at schools. But it's the actual cowbell. Right. And how old is it? Uh, That one, I think, is from the early 1800s. The 3D printer is just one way the lab is using new technology. Another way, recent use of artificial intelligence to help with cataloging documents for an upcoming exhibit. Joe Bagley, city archaeologist, explains. We're, we're about to release a big archive of historic documents that are going to help guide our 250th work in Charlestown ahead of the Boston, um, Battle of Bunker Hill. Um, transcribing 18th and 17th century documents is... Some people's idea of fun, <laughs> not necessarily mine, although I like reading them, but not transcribing them. Um, but our digital archaeologist, Nadia, has come up with a really impressive use of um, some very recent technology to help with that process. So I'm going to turn it over to her. Hi, my name is Nadia Klein. Tell us about what you've come up with. Well, what we're working with now, we're kind of experimenting with AI and with uh, ChatGPT in particular. And what we've been able to do is take uh, an image, a photograph of one of these documents that Joe's been describing, the claims from the, the fire in Charlestown after the Battle of Bunker Hill, and we can feed that to ChatGPT and tell it, you know, give it instructions, which is basically just read this document, and it can give us back a transcription of that, and it does a phenomenal job with it with very little interference for me actually which is really impressive and exciting for us because it's going to save us a lot of time 
When you say a lot of time, do you mean it's going to save you 10 hours or it's going to save you a thousand hours? Oh, closer to a thousand probably. They're long, they're difficult to read. The spelling is variable. It's not standardized, so it takes a long time. Um, but the computer is also able, the ChatGPT is also able to see things that we don't see when we're reading them. So just today I was showing Joe one that I processed with it and it saw the person who had written this had written, started to write on June 17, 1775. And then they went back, crossed that out and wrote by the fire on June 17, 1775. My brain auto-corrected that, but the computer picks it up. So it's kind of giving us these, these little details that we might not see, especially if we have 700 something of these to go through and we're trying to get them done. So it's, it's really, a, and it can be an important tool for us. You just heard Nadia Klein talking about her work with artificial intelligence and document archiving. And that's from our visit to the city's archaeology lab a few weeks ago. You're listening to Radio Boston. I'm Tiziana Deering. For 40-plus years, the city of Boston has actively collected and preserved its history. The result? More than one million artifacts, and they're available to view and research at the city's newly reopened Archaeology Lab. We visited the lab in December with city archaeologist Joe Bagley and Reverend Mariama Whitehammond, Boston's chief of environment, energy, and open space. One million is such a big number that it's almost hard to conceptualize. And it turns out finding those items is actually just the beginning of the journey, says Reverend Mariama. When I took over this role, I, I didn't know how much we had. And it was amazing to learn that. But I think there are two pieces that have been important to me, not just in this leadership role, but really as a resident, that I think we are actively working to share more. So yes, there is a lot of colonial history and that is what Boston is known for. But the archeology span team has been working for many years also to collect pre-colonial history, mm -hmm. right? To document that there were native folks here thousands of years before the colonists arrived. And, and not just to document that history, but Joe has built relationships with a lot of tribal leaders to have a conversation about how we document that history in a good way and how we share and coordinate power over those artifacts. And so there's work being done on Long Island right now to train uh, local folks into archeological techniques and to negotiate with members of the Massachusetts tribe, particularly how do we best preserve their history? How do we do it in a way that is respectful? How do we do it in a way that doesn't replicate the horrific, oppressive relationships um, that were really built during that colonial period? And so that's been one thing that's been amazing for me to watch. First, to learn what they had already been doing and then to watch how that has expanded. And then I think secondly, as a person of African descent, this team has been working, and Joe particularly, to sort of say there is a piece of that history, that colonial history, that has not been documented adequately. We have an image of ourselves in Boston as abolitionists, but we have not had accurate understandings of how many enslaved people did live here and contributed to the building of this city 
And it's been particularly powerful for me. Um, the team spent lots of time and a lot of archives and a lot of records to pull out the names of more than, I think we're at, are we at 1,800 now? Where are we? 2,000. Two, okay, over 2,000 now. Many of them who are named and some of whom are not. And so this last Juneteenth, we had a gathering of folks, particularly of African and indigenous descent, to read those names. That's something I never knew. As a kid, I knew that there were enslaved people in the city, but I didn't know the extent of how many, nor did I really understand their contributions or nor their names. And so we talked about those ceramics. One of the things that they discovered is that there were two enslaved potter who were contributing to ceramics in Charlestown. And the question is, what was their story? And where did they come from? And part of that may mean that people all the way in West Africa hopefully will be able to pull up this digital archive and say, huh, that pattern reminds me of something that I've seen here. And there's a possibility for exchange. And so I just, I can't um, say how grateful I am for the work that this team is doing. And one of the reasons we have you out here and wanted to do this is, is that more people need to know. There is power in these artifacts. There is healing in these artifacts. There are tough conversations in these artifacts, but we need to have them. And I believe our city will be richer and better if more of us are leaning in and interacting with this material, even if sometimes it's hard. Jack and Acton likely made this chamber pot. Uh, Jack and Acton were the two ceramicists yes. that Reverend Mariama was telling us exactly. about. Exactly. So this is a chamber pot that was found in um, an outhouse across the street from the Parker Pottery, which is where Jack and Acton were enslaved. And Grace Parker would sell her wares next door to Mary Long, who owned the tavern. So we have these two women business owners in the 18th century working together to support each other. And we have the Parker um, pottery with these amazing decorations of swags and bars that we see turn up again and again on these pots, but they're also exporting all around the, north, uh, the Northeast down to, um, up into Nova Scotia, down to the South, South Carolina area. Um, so these pottery sherds are turning up on 18th century sites up and down the East Coast. Um, so Jack and Acton's wares are turning, are really have an impact on the history um, of ceramics in the East Coast of America. Um, we also placed them next to a sugar mold, which would have been made somewhere in the Caribbean and brought up during um, transatlantic trade, uh, bringing sugar and molasses to New, to New England. Um, this is likely made by an enslaved potter down in the Caribbean, um, but certainly the sugar and the molasses would then be transformed into rum by distillers here in Boston who were also using enslaved labor. So the presence of enslaved people is endemic in Boston and part of every single piece of the economy um, up until the late 1700s in Boston. One of the things we've been learning more about on the show in the last year or so is that at the time that enslavement was still legal in colonial Boston, one practice was that people who were enslaved might be artisans 
who had a sort of independent practice, might make money that way or might have been seconded out uh, as a ceramicist or a weaver or a, uh, what's the, you know, the anvil, uh, blacksmith. blacksmith. Um, and that may be part of what you're talking about in these, this case with these ceramicists. But with open questions, Joe, there's still so much more for us to learn on this. Well, now looking at the probates and deeds and um, related documents from people across the city, and we're, we're shocked at how many artisans relied on enslaved labor and profited off of enslaved labor. And it's actually one of our research goals to start looking at not just where there are places that have never been documented, that it contained both an artisan and an enslaved artisan living together, working together. But in some cases, sadly, going back to sites that have actually already been dug that have enslaved people on them that were never brought up during that analysis. Oftentimes because, frankly, archaeology is still catching up to things and the presence of enslaved people on these sites in the North oftentimes felt like something that was there, but no one really knew how to see it or what, what that would look like archaeologically. And so we're now at a state where we can say, okay, that site that's been dug and the stuff has been out of the ground for 30, 40 years, there was an enslaved pewterer there, for instance, or an enslaved potter or an enslaved printer. They must have had some impact on what we're seeing in the ground. How do we hear their voice? How do we see their life? How do we see their art represented on that site? And how can we bring that back to the present to show people what was being done? Do these archives talk to you? Do you ever stand here and sort of hear the million artifacts talking to you and trying to tell you stories? I think it's more of an overwhelming sense of responsibility in some cases. Like when we when we realize that we have something so interesting, like, oh my goodness, we just found out that this person was an enslaver and based on the value of the enslaved person, they're probably a trained professional. And oh no, that means that everything that's been interpreted as belonging to that person who was the enslaver may have actually been something created by this enslaved person. How are we as archeologists going to be able to represent that story, tell that story accurately, and find that when, when we're just looking at the stuff, how do we bring the story back to the stuff when we may only have one document that mentions the presence of somebody and that's the only time they're gonna come up in any of our research. Now how do we take that and turn it into a much bigger story or a much more interesting human story? Is that something we can even do now or do we have to kind of build and build and build and maybe come back with more information later? It makes me think of Taya Miles's work about the absence, especially, you know, in the mid to late 1800s of documentation for enslaved people. And the fact that often all we had was, to use your term, Joe, the stuff, and figuring out the story from the stuff, because we willfully didn't have the paper and the documentation and the identification and the names and the history, because we didn't deem it important at the time. Yeah, one of the, the shocking things about the records that do exist is in documents where enslaved people are mentioned, it's only about half the time that the names are ever mentioned. And then within that, we have, I think at this point, have only counted around 100 to 150 enslaved people that have a recorded last name. And what that means is that we're also seeing, for instance, dozens and dozens of Janes in the records. And we can't tell if that's one Jane coming up 24 times or if that's 
five chains or 24 chains. And it's so frustrating to see this information and know that even when someone's named, you're still not sure what, where, how many people are really being represented there and feeling like you're, you're losing people. And even if it's 24 Janes, they're all Jane. Yeah. We've even struggled with trying to be, we really want to try to find the documentation that can help people in Boston understand the, the leap between 1783, when slavery becomes essentially non-viable in Boston, to the early 1800s, where you have free people of color with last names, where did the names come from? Because those, those people in Boston that go all the way back to that time period likely have enslaved ancestors here in the city. And we're working actively trying to figure out, like crack the puzzle of what is it that makes a name? Um, where do these names come from? That was city archaeologist Joe Bagley and Reverend Mariama White-Hammond, Boston's chief of environment, energy, and open space. You're listening to Radio Boston. I'm Tiziana Deering. We are taking you on a tour of the city's newly reopened archaeology lab today, home to more than a million pieces of Boston history. City archaeologist Joe Bagley and Reverend Mariama White-Hammond, who's Boston's chief of environment, energy, and open space, were our guides a few weeks ago on the tour. And toward the end, they picked three items from the collection that they found deeply compelling and told us their stories. Now, we were in a temperature-controlled space to help preserve the artifacts, so you might notice the HVAC making an appearance sometimes. First, we learned about a cowrie shell. These small oval-shaped shells were traditionally used in African cultures for jewelry and currency. And Reverend Mariama introduced us to this cowrie shell unearthed in Roxbury last year. So the first is a cowrie shell, which was found last year during a dig at the Shirley Eustace House in Roxbury. Growing up, I I went to the Eustace House. I lived not far away. And the story that I always heard was about the two colonial governors who lived there. That was definitely true. What you will hear now, based on the dig um, that Joe and the team did, but also based on some of the work that their board and staff have done and the work of some students who also started to do some digging is the presence of enslaved people at the Shirley Eustace House right there in Roxbury where many of the descendants of enslaved people still live. This cowrie shell was found in a dig at the site, the original site where the house probably would have been. We've also found a lot of the foundation and some some things and there's, there's some questions still, but these shells were really important in many parts, particularly in West Africa, and they were used in some places as currency, but also something that people would have treasured. It would have been something that people held as to give them a sense of home. And so the fact that this was found is a reminder that enslaved people live there. And I wanted to take a note because we have some of the names of those people. We know that there was an infant named Jane who was baptized at King's Chapel in downtown. We know that Nanny, Affy, and Caesar, Thomas Scipio, who we know actually became a caretaker for the house at the point that the British folks said, I don't think it's so safe to be here anymore. There seems like there's a bit of an uprising. They left and left the house. What's a little disappointing to me is that I feel like given that amount of service, you would have hoped he would be free, but instead he was sold after having given the service and making sure that that house actually remained. And then there was also an inscription about an unnamed Negro woman that 
may have been Jane when she was older, we don't know. It's an example of the work to continue un uncovering, but this cowrie shell represents direct evidence that folks were there. If I remember, during that excavation, there was a question whether we would find something. And in fact, the cowrie shell was part of the answer yes. Yeah. I remember I was, I kind of wanted to like take the day off and go dig. And, <laughs> and I, but Joe called me after they found it. And, you know, the, Roxbury is the neighborhood I grew up in. And I love this city. And there's a lot of complexity to the way that the contribution of our ancestors have been overlooked. And um, what was powerful is a little bit after this happened, one of my church members was leading a um, gathering called Black Cotton Club. And so people were there, a mixture of different folks, and a few members of our congregation went to support her. And she was doing it in the carriage house at the Shirley Eustis house. And there was a circle. It reminded me a lot of you know, the idea of tarrying and, and ring shouts. And there was a circle of artists and musicians and people are playing. And I was able to say to folks, there was a point where it was kind of an open mic space. And I said to people, I need you to know that we have been here before. And it's possible that hundreds of years ago, there were also black people in this same area practicing their spiritual traditions and coming together, even in the midst of their enslavement. And I told them about the cowrie shell. And people, like it was just a moment, like we could feel it in the room. And then uh, a number of months later, I got an invitation to come speak at a Juneteenth event at the Shirley Eustis House. And it turns out that one of the women who was there, who is also an artist herself, she's a photographer, she travels the world and is well known. She said, oh my gosh, people need to know this. And she called the Shirley Eustis House and said, I want to have a Juneteenth event there. And so they partnered together and I showed up and I have to be honest, I expected 40, 50 people. A lot of times, you know, it's the first time. It's not going to be huge. I got there and there were families and there were children playing and food and, and dancers and just this beautiful scene of black people, many of whom live in that neighborhood, claiming that space. And so these are not just about artifacts. They are about reminding ourselves, that our ancestors were there. And claiming that space, when a lot of times we've been written out of the story. Um, and so, you know, I think about this artifact and really thankful that people in the neighborhood, people in the larger community know about it. And it is a very small, you know, little piece. I'm sure this is about a half inch but it is evidence that we were there. I'm glad that you pointed out its size, because I was going to say it's maybe the size of my pinky fingernail, but that's not to diminish it, but to show how mighty it, it is. is. Tell us about the other thing you picked. So this is a brooch that was found in Beacon Hill. It was located in a dig near a rooming house that we know many black women lived in, in Beacon Hill. You can see in it, there's sort of spirals, and again, Beacon Hill. We know that that was a center of the black community. I grew up down the street from Charles Street Church, which is a black church now in Roxbury, 
But back in the day, it was literally on Charles Street. And they came to a point where so few black people were still remaining in the neighborhood that they decided it made sense for them to move where many of their congregants were. And at that point, that was Roxbury. Again. So Charles Street AME? Mm-hmm. Charles, Charles Street, Street AME, AME was on Charles Got Street it. in Beacon Hill. Got it. Charles Street and all of Beacon Hill was a center of the black community and particularly some of the free black community. And so this brooch found next to that rooming house most likely belonged to a black woman who lived in that rooming house. Hmm. And, you know, one of the things I've said to Joe, I hope like maybe there's an artisan out there who would see this artifact and want to make a modern day version. I would wear it. I would buy that in a second. I think, again, it's a tie and it's really small. Maybe this is like an inch and a quarter. But again, it's a reminder that we were there. And I think that's really powerful. Yeah. Joe, do you want to, why don't we just have you guys switch seats? And Joe, you can bring your artifact over as well. So you have a, a, it's almost crown shaped green artifact that I love this, figuring out what it's the size of, you know, maybe, um, maybe this is an inch and a half or two inches long. Yeah. Tell me about it. So this is, um, as far as we know so far, the oldest creation found in Boston. Really, this mm-hmm. is the oldest, I'm going to be insufficient in my words, the <laughs> oldest thing, right, we dug up yeah. so far. So far, yeah. Out of a million things we have. Yes. Wow. If you looked at Boston's history as a 100-foot-long timeline, right. 1630 happens in the last three feet. Wow. So the vast majority of the story that we of, of the place we now call Boston happened before 1630. And so one of the things that we've been really... Um, trying to make sure is talked about and heard is is the story of the native community in Boston and um, this this um, the working with the community uh, we've been asked to use the term creation instead of artifact okay to keep like the humanity of the person that made these things in the storytelling of it so what is this creation so this is the base of a spear point or a knife of some kind um, it broke probably around the time that it was made. Um, and the person that was using it um, looks like they might have broke it while they were trying to resharpen it. And um, for some reason, it became part of the ground and was found during the 1980s during a, a dig to create uh, to build some lighting projects in the common. Um, What's it made of? It's made out of local stone. We call it argillite, Cambridge argillite. Um, it's it, it's actually part of the eroding Blue Hills that turned into a mudstone when there used to be a, a kind of a small sea where Boston is today. Um, you just need to say that again. Sure. So Boston used to be a small sea. A small sea, yes. And then the Blue Hills eroded. Yes. And it turned into stone. Yes. And this is made of that. We can go back further. 600 million years ago, there was a massive volcano where the Blue Hills are today. Yeah, you're bending my brain. Lava, it looked like Mount Fuji. Um, and then um, that lava created a stone called rhyolite that native people now use for stone tools. Um, but then some of that stone then eroded down into the small sea in the Boston basin that opened up like a Boston kind of split open like a pea pod. And you have the Blue Hills and the Lynn Hills on either side. And in the middle today, you have Boston and Cambridge and that area. And all that mud settled down into that kind of ocean 
and then turned into a stone over millions of years. Um, all this happens south of the equator, because that's where Boston used to be. And then eventually it gets <laughs> smushed up against the rest of North America. Boston used to be south of the equator. Yeah. Okay. Yep. <laughs> okay. So We're eventually, just getting to how they make the rock. Yeah. yeah. So eventually yeah. we get to this. How old is this? This is between 5,500 and 7,500 years old. So that means that when this was being made... There were no pyramids in Egypt. There was no Stonehenge, and but there were people in Boston living here. Um, and on that hundred-foot timeline of the his, human history of Boston, this is only halfway down. So we still have five thousand years of history in Boston, where we know people are here. We have archaeological evidence in Cambridge and Canton and Ipswich, all over. But Boston. It's just a little bit hard to find stuff here because we've, we've done a few things over mm-hmm. the years to make it a little bit harder to find some sites. But Do we know who they called themselves or who claims them as their ancestors now? So this would be part of the traditional homelands of the Massachusetts people um, who are still here today. And we're actively working with the Massachusetts on how best to respond to their sites being present all throughout Boston. In fact, we've I don't think we've done a single dig in the past couple of years that hasn't turned up some native creation from the Massachusetts on these sites, even historic sites. In fact, the, the cowrie shell, that same unit also contained native creations from an ancient native site that was right there on the shoreline overlooking what's now South Bay. So how do you talk with um, the Massachusetts people? How do you work with them about literally ownership, possession of these creations? Who has the right to display? Mm-hmm. Who has the right to... to Uh, you know, use and document and talk about all of that. The key is it's a relationship that has to be developed over many, many years. I've I've been working with the tribe now for, I think, almost close to 20 years. Um, It's a trust relationship. We make mistakes. We upset each other. We come back together. It's it's a part of like an ongoing work. Um, But now we are working directly together on essentially answering those very questions Archaeology is an inherently colonial act. Archaeologists, especially back in the day, were like, I have every right to go wherever I want and to dig up whatever I'm interested in learning about, regardless of whether people think it should or shouldn't be dug up. Um, And we're really trying to go back to square one and fundamentally question archaeology. What is archaeology? What should archaeology be? Um, So now we have policies where we only dig if there's something going to happen to the site after we've worked to eliminate every possibility of having any disturbance to a site um, with the tribe. And so um, now we're looking proactively across areas like the Harbor Islands where we have erosion and knowing that these ancient sites are falling into the ocean, um, we're working with the tribe to come up with a plan together. What is the appropriate response to that? Is it digging? Is it not digging? do things come off the islands when we find them or do they stay on the islands? Do the things that we have in collections go back? Um, And all those are open questions today. Um, There's a lot of laws and regulations on the actual collections themselves. So it's going to be a bigger kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. But um, my goal is to more or less make a new archaeology that says when you're doing archaeology of native things, native time periods, you're doing that with the native community answering their questions and doing what they ultimately want done with those things. If it means putting them right back, okay. If that means 
turning them over to the tribe afterwards for curation, great. Um, but it's archaeology is now needing to become more of a technical service that can answer questions that communities whose stuff we're digging up actually have, and not just I'm digging it up because I want to know the story, and because I'm interested, I have a right to know. So one last question for each of you, Joe Bagley and Reverend Mariama White-Hammond, and Joe, you're in front of the microphone, so I'll ask you first. A hundred years from now, what are we creating today that we will have on a piece of preservation glass like this that will be important to talk about then? I think it'll be a conglomeration of microplastics. <laughs> and we'll be pointing out how this was allowed to all of our horror a hundred years from now. And you, Reverend Mariama? So one thing I'll say is that I think a uh, hundred years from now, one of the things that is already in our collection, which is a tape from New Edition, will be huge. <laughs> but I, I actually hope that um, we are able to share this and that I really hope that there are jewelers out there who will look at this brooch and create a modern version. Honestly, we've gotten a little addicted to stuff. And... We have a lot of other ways to also tell our stories and that we create art that doesn't just tell the story of now, but that's in conversation with the story of our past. That was Reverend Mariama White-Hammond, Boston's Chief of Environment, Energy, and Open Space. She and city archaeologist Joe Bagley helped us tour the new archaeology lab recently.